Section twenty of Essays and Dialogues. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Essays and Dialogues by Giacomo Leopardi. Translated by Charles Edwards. Section twenty. Remarkable Sayings of Philip Ottonieri Chapter 1 Philip Ottonieri, a few of whose remarkable sayings I am about to recount, partly heard from his own mouth and partly related to me by others, was born at Nubiana in the province of Valdivento. There he lived most of his life and died a short time ago, leaving behind him the reputation of having never injured anyone either by word or deed. He was detested by the majority of his fellow citizens because he took so little interest in the many things that gave them pleasure, although he did nothing to show that he despised those who differed from himself in this respect. He is believed to have been, not only in theory but also in practice, what so many of his contemporaries professed to be, that is, a philosopher. For this reason other men thought him peculiar, though really he never affected singularity in anything. Indeed, he once said that a man who nowadays practised the greatest possible singularity in dress, manners or actions would be far less singular than were those ancients who obtained a reputation for singularity and that the difference between such a person and his contemporaries would by the ancients have been regarded as scarcely worthy of notice. And comparing J. J. Rousseau's singularity, which seemed very striking to the people of his generation, with that of Democritus and the first cynic philosophers, he said that whoever nowadays lived as differently from his contemporaries as these Greeks lived from theirs, would not merely be regarded as singular, but would be treated as outside the pale of human society. He thought, too, that the degree of civilization reached by any country might be estimated from observation of the degree of singularity possible in the inhabitants of that country. Though very temperate in his habits of life, he professed Epicureanism, perhaps lightly rather than from conviction. But he condemned Epicurus, affirming that in his time and nation there was much more pleasure to be obtained from the pursuit of glory and virtue than from idleness, indifference and sensuality, which things were considered by that philosopher to represent the greatest good of life. He said also that the Epicureanism of modern times has nothing in common with the Epicureanism of the ancients. In philosophy he liked to call himself Socratic, like Socrates, too, he often spent great part of the day reasoning philosophically with any chance acquaintance, and especially with certain of his friends, on any impromptu subject. But unlike Socrates, he did not frequent the shops of the shoemakers, carpenters and blacksmiths, for he was of the opinion that, though the artisans of Athens may have had time to spend in philosophizing, those of Nubiana would starve were they to follow such an example. Nor did he, like Socrates, explain his conclusions by means of endless interrogation and argument. For he said, although men in the present day may have more patience than their ancestors, they would never consent to reply to a thousand consecutive questions, still less to hear their answers answered. In fact, 
he only resembled socrates in his manner of speaking sometimes ironical sometimes equivocal he analyzed the famous socratic irony in the following way socrates was naturally very tender-hearted and of a most lovable disposition but he was physically so unattractive that it is probable he despaired from his youth of ever inspiring others with a warmer feeling than that of friendship far insufficient to satisfy his sensitive and ardent nature which often felt towards others a much more lively affection he was courageous in all matters of the intellect but seems to have been wanting in natural courage and those other qualities that would have enabled him to hold his own in public life amid the tumult of wars the sedition and the license of all kinds then characteristic of athenian affairs in addition to this his ridiculous and insignificant figure must have been no slight prejudice to him among people who made little distinction between the good and the beautiful and who were also much addicted to banter thus it happened that in a free city full of wealth and the bustle and amusements of life socrates poor rejected by love incapable of a public career yet gifted with very great intelligence which doubtless intensified the consciousness of his defects resigned himself to a life of philosophizing on the actions manners and thoughts of his fellow-citizens the irony he used was natural to a man who found himself as it were excluded from participation in the existence of others but it was due to his inherent nobility and affableness and perhaps also to the celebrity he gained by his reasonings and which flattered his self-esteem that this irony instead of being bitter and contemptuous was pleasing and expressed in a friendly manner then it was that philosophy as cicero has well said made her first descent from heaven and was led by socrates into the towns and houses of men hitherto occupied with speculations as to the nature of hidden things she now studied the manners and lives of men and discussed virtues and vices things good and useful and the contrary but socrates did not primarily think of introducing this novel feature into philosophy nor did he propose to teach anything nor even aspire to the name of philosopher which then only belonged to those who made physics or metaphysics the study of their lives he openly proclaimed his ignorance of all things and in his conversation with others simply discussed the affairs of his neighbours and the topics of the day he preferred this amusement to the real study of philosophy or any other science or art and being naturally more inclined to act than speculate he only adopted this manner of life because shut out from a more congenial employment he was always more willing to converse with young and handsome persons than with others in this way he hoped to gain at least esteem where he would far rather have had love and since all the schools of greek philosophy are traceable directly or indirectly to the socratic school ottonieri asserted that the flat nose and satyr-like visage of a highly intellectual and warm-hearted man were the origin of all greek philosophy and consequently the philosophy of modern times he also said that in the writings of his followers the individuality of socrates is comparable to those theatrical masks of the ancients which always retained their name character and identity but the role of which varied in each distinct performance 
he left behind him no philosophical or other writings for public benefit being asked one day why he did not give written as well as verbal expression to his philosophical views he replied reading is a conversation held with the writer now as in fates and public entertainments they who take no active part in the spectacle or performance soon become tired similarly in conversation men prefer to speak rather than listen and books necessarily resemble those people who take all the speaking to themselves and never listen to others consequently to atone for their monopoly of talking they ought to say many fine and excellent things expressing them in a remarkable manner every book that does not do this inspires the same feeling of aversion as an insatiable chatterer chapter two Ottonieri made no distinction between business and pleasure. However serious his occupation, he called it pastime. Only once, having been idle temporarily, he confessed he had then experienced no amusement. He said that our truest pleasures are due to the imagination. Thus, children construct a world out of nothing, whereas men find nothing in the world. He compared those pleasures termed real to an artichoke, all the leaves of which must be masticated in order to reach the pith. He added that such artichokes as these are very rare, and that many others resemble them in exterior, but within a void of kernel. He, for his part, finding the leaves unpalatable, determined to abstain from both leaves and kernel. Being asked what was the worst moment of life, he said, Except those of pain or fear, the worst moments are, in my opinion, those spent in pleasure. For the anticipation and recollection of these last, which fill up the remainder of life, are better and more delightful than the pleasures themselves. He also made a comparison between pleasures and odours. The latter, he considered, usually leave behind a desire to experience them again, proportioned to their agreeableness and he regarded the sense of smell as the most difficult to satisfy of all our senses. Again, he compared odours to anticipations of good things, and said that odoriferous foods are generally more pleasing to the nose than the palate, for their scent originates savoury expectations which are seldom sufficiently realised. He explained why sometimes he was so impatient about the delay of a pleasure sure to occur sooner or later, by saying that he feared the enjoyment he should derive from it would be of diminished force on account of the exaggerated anticipation conceived by his mind for this reason he endeavoured in the meantime to forget the coming good as though it were an impending misfortune he said that each of us in entering the world resembles a man on a hard and uncomfortable bed as soon as the man lies down he feels restless and begins to toss from side to side and change his position momentarily in the hope of inducing sleep to close his eyes thus he spends the whole night and though sometimes he believes himself on the point of falling asleep he never actually succeeds in doing so at length dawn comes and he rises unrefreshed watching some bees at work one day in company with certain acquaintances he remarked blessed are ye if ye know not your unhappiness. He considered the miseries of mortals to be incalculable, 
and that no single one of them could be adequately deplored in answer to horace's question why is no one content with his lot he said because no one's lot is happy subjects equally with princes the weak and the strong were they happy would be contented and would envy no one for men are no more incapable of being satisfied than other animals but since happiness alone can satisfy them they are necessarily dissatisfied because essentially unhappy if a man could be found he said who had attained to the summit of human happiness that man would be the most miserable of mortals for even the oldest of us have hopes and schemes for the improvement of our condition he recalled a passage in xenophon where a purchaser of land is advised to buy badly cultivated fields because such as do not in the future bring forth more abundantly than at the time of purchase give less satisfaction than if they were to increase in productiveness similarly all things in which we can observe improvement please us more than others in which improvement is impossible on the other hand he observed that no condition is so bad that it cannot be worse and that however unhappy a man may be he cannot console or boast himself that his misfortunes are incapable of increase though hope is unbounded the good things of life are limited thus were we to consider a single day in the life of a rich or poor man master or servant bearing in mind all the circumstances and needs of their respective positions we should generally find an equality of good throughout but nature has not limited our misfortunes nor can the mind scarcely conceive a cause of suffering which is non-existent or which at some time was not to be found among humanity thus whereas most men vainly hope for an increase of the good things they possess they never want for genuine objects of fear and if fortune sometimes obstinately refuses to benefit us in the least degree she never fails to afflict us with new torments of such a nature as to crush within us even the courage of despair he often used to laugh at those philosophers who think that a man is able to free himself from the tyranny of fortune by having a contempt for good and evil things which are entirely beyond his control as if happiness and the contrary were absolutely in his own power to accept or refuse on the same subject he also said amongst other things that however much a man may act as a philosopher in his relations with others he is never a philosopher to himself again he said that it is as impossible to take more interest in the affairs of others than in our own as to regard their affairs as though they were our own but supposing this philosophical disposition of mind were possible which it is not and possessed by one of us how would it stand the test of a thousand trials would it not be evident that the happiness or unhappiness of such a person is nevertheless a matter of fortune would not the very disposition they boast of be dependent on circumstances is not man's reason daily governed by accidents of all kinds do not the numberless bodily disturbances due to stupidity excitement madness rage dullness and a hundred other species of folly temporary or continuous trouble weaken distract and even extinguish it 
does not memory wisdom's ally lose strength as we advance in age how many of us fall into a second childhood and we almost all decrease in mental vigour as we grow old or when our mind remains unimpaired time by means of some bodily disease enfeebles our courage and firmness and not infrequently deprives us of both attributes altogether in short it is utter folly to confess that physically we are subject to many things over which we have no control and at the same time to assert that the mind which is so greatly dependent on the body is not similarly controlled by external influences he summed up by saying that man as a whole is absolutely in the power of fortune being asked for what purpose he thought men were born he laughingly replied to realize how much better it were not to be born chapter three on the occasion of a certain misfortune ottonieri said it is less hard to lose a much-loved person suddenly or after a short illness than to see him waste away gradually so that before his death he is transformed in body and mind into quite another being from what he formerly was this latter is a cruel thing for the beloved one instead of leaving to us the tender recollections of his real identity remains with us a changed being in whose presence our old affection slowly but surely fades away at length he dies but the remembrance of him as he was at the last destroys the sweeter and earlier image within us thus he is lost entirely and our imagination instead of comforting saddens us such misfortunes as these are inconsolable one day he heard a man lamenting and saying if only i were freed from this trouble all my other troubles would be easy to bear he replied not so for then those that are now light would be heavy another person said to him had this pain continued i could not have borne it ottonieri answered on the contrary habit would have made it more bearable touching many things as to human nature he held opinions not in accordance with those of the multitude and often different from those of learned men for instance he thought it unwise to address a petition to any one when the person addressed is in a state of extraordinary hilarity and he said when the petition is such that it cannot be granted at once i consider occasions of joy and sorrow as equally inopportune to its success for both sentiments make a man too selfish to trouble himself with the affairs of others in sorrow our misfortune in joy our good fortune monopolizes our mind and erects as it were a barrier between us and matters external to ourselves both are also peculiarly unsuitable for exciting compassion when sorrowful we reserve all pity for ourselves when joyful we colour all things with our joy and are inclined to regard the troubles and misfortunes of others as entirely imaginative or else we refuse to think of them as too discordant with the mind's present condition the best time to ask a favour or some beneficial promise for others is when the person petitioned is in a state of quiet happy good humour unaccompanied by any excessive joyfulness or better still 
when under the influence of that keen but indefinite pleasure which results from a reverie of thought and consists of a peaceful agitation of the spirit at such times men are most open to pity and entreaty and are often glad to please others and give expression to the vague gratifying activity of their thoughts by some good action he also denied that an afflicted person ordinarily receives more pity from fellow sufferers than from other people for a man's companions in misfortune are always inclined to give their own troubles precedence over his as being more serious and compassionable and often when a man in recounting his sufferings thinks he has excited the sympathy of his auditors he is interrupted by one of them who expatiates in turn on his misfortunes and ends by trying to show that he is the more afflicted of the two he said that in such cases it generally happens as occurred to achilles when priam prostrated himself at his feet with entreaties and lamentations the tears of priam excited the tears of achilles who began to groan and weep like the trojan king this he did not from sympathy but because of his own misfortunes and the thoughts of his dead father and friend we compassionate others he said when they suffer from evils we have experienced but not so when we and they suffer simultaneously he said that from carelessness and thoughtlessness we do many cruel or wicked things which very often have the appearance of genuine cruelty and maliciousness for example he mentioned the case of a man who spending his time away from home left his servants in a dwelling scarcely weatherproof not designedly but simply from thoughtlessness or disregard of their comfort he considered malice inhumanity and the like to be far less common among men than mere thoughtlessness to which he attributed very many things called by harder names he once said that it were better to be completely ungrateful towards a benefactor than to make some trifling return for his great kindness for in the latter case the benefactor must consider the obligation as cancelled whatever may have been the motive that inspired the donor and however small the return he is thus despoiled of the bare satisfaction of gratitude on which he probably reckoned and yet he cannot regard himself as treated ungratefully though he is so in reality i have heard the following saying attributed to him we are inclined and accustomed to give our acquaintances credit for being able to discern our true merits or what we imagine them to be and to recognize the virtue of our words and actions we also suppose that they ponder over these virtues and merits of ours and never let them escape their memory but on the other hand we do not discern similar qualities in them or else are unwilling to acknowledge the fact. End of section 20